Welcome back, Composer Quest listeners. I'm your composer host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and I'm excited to bring you this episode with music psychologist Vicki Williamson. Vicki has been studying earworms, songs that get stuck in our heads, and in my interview with her, she shares some secrets to what makes music sticky. We also cover a bunch of interesting psychology topics, like why do babies have an innate sense of rhythm? And why are musical memories preserved even in severe cases of amnesia, like the case of Clive Waring, who lost his memory and can no longer form new ones, but yet he still retains his ability to perform music. So stick around, it's an interesting episode, and you'll get to hear what the oldest known instrument sounds like. Plus, at the end of the episode, I reveal a song that I had been working on for years and years and am finally releasing to the public. So before we get to my talk with Vicki Williamson, I just want to remind you that you can download all ComposerQuest episodes for free or stream them at ComposerQuest.com or on iTunes or Stitcher. Another reminder, it's not too late to participate in the Fortune Cookie Songwriting Quest. Just go to ComposerQuest.com slash Quest 6 if you're interested in getting your music onto the official Composer Quest Fortune Cookie album. Now, on to my talk with Dr. Vicki Williamson. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Good, good. So, Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you lived there? Uh, two months. Are you liking it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's just now starting to look like the Switzerland I remember from school geography books. So it's just starting to get snow on the mountains and things like that. Cool. Well, I originally had found out about you because of your earworm studies. What kind of things did you learn from studying earworms? And maybe you could give a definition of earworm first. The word earworm is in the dictionary. It's a translation, as far as I'm aware, from a German word originally. So German is a wonderful language. It has a word for absolutely every single experience. And when they don't have a word for it, they just add all old words together. In this case, the word they had for this experience of uh, mental repetition of music was Orphan. And the way we defined it for the research purposes was a small snippet of music that comes unbidden into the mind and repeats for a period of time afterwards outside of voluntary control. What have you learned from studying earworms? What causes them? Or, and Do you have any ideas about that? When we started studying uh, earworms um, in my research group in London, it became quickly apparent that there wasn't going to be what causes earworms um, eating broccoli kind of answer. There's not going to be one thing that ever causes an earworm. You have to break it down. So we first looked at the different situations, which is what's going on when an earworm starts. And you have to imagine your memory system is like lines of dominoes. And when you see or hear something, you can trigger off a line of associated memories. So you might read the word love in the newspaper and there's loads of associations that fire off to do with love. And one of them might be the tune, All You Need Is Love. And if that domino gets knocked over, then you can bring this tune to your conscious awareness and it can get stuck there. Are there certain songs that you 
saw a lot of people having the same experience of having an earworm? Um, yeah, so we collected, gosh, I think at last count it was well over 5,000 reports of earworms. And we started to keep record of every single tune that everybody said stuck in their head. But a new film could come out, a new advert could come out, a new artist could be released, and these would flood our top 10 chart. So in terms of what makes a tune sticky, it's entirely driven, of course, by what people listen to, because a song has to be in your memory in order for it to be brought up from your memory and repeat. So what we did was we collected uh, lots of earworm tunes and we matched them to non-earworm tunes. So these are tunes by the same artist, which were just as popular, but they weren't reported as earworms in our survey. And that's kind of like comparing a drug to a placebo. So you compare the earworms to the non-earworms and you say, what is it about this group of earworm tunes that are similar to each other, but different to the placebos? And in order to do that, you need a computer program that can analyze musical features because you're talking about billions and billions of bits of information or data. So we did this massive survey. And in the end, it turns out to be quite a simple answer that largely what makes it tune sticky is what makes them easy to sing. Hmm. So the computer program that we used analyzed over 50 different structures within music, including key and um, tempo and uh, pitch movements and temporal organization, so on. And the things that came out really strongly as predicting earworms were basically the length of the notes and the pitch intervals. And so if you had longer notes and smaller gaps between your notes, that was what was common to the earworm tunes that was not common to their placebos. And we looked at it and say, well, hey, that's, that's what makes a tune easier to sing. And that ties in really nicely with our evidence that actually it's people who sing along to music are the ones who are more likely to report frequent earworms. Huh, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, the thing about the musical feature analysis, I've presented it before and people's reaction is sometimes, well, yeah, I could have told you that. And I've often said, well... Actually, I think I could have stood on this stage and told you any of the musical features. I could have told you it's slower tunes or tunes in a major tempo, and you probably would have said to me, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But you, it's not those things. It's Those things do not need to be added to the formula to reliably predict earworms so far. It comes down to those two features. So, What other features did you find that weren't a factor what the program does is it takes all 52 features and creates a model saying which is the most predictive and then adds them stepwise, so one by one. And by those two, the pitch intervals and the, the length of notes, we were already predicting earworm versus placebo at over 80% reliability. So the other things do contribute, but the contribution is really minimal compared to those two. Okay. Cool. Do you have any personal earworms that come back to you all the time? <laughs> yeah, as you can imagine, I've been asked that a few times. Um, I have a couple of lifelong earworms, and I'm not alone. Many of the people I've spoken to over the years have said, 
yeah, I have this particular tune that comes back to me when I'm when I'm happy or when I'm stressed or when I'm meeting this particular person, this tune gets stuck in my head. Uh, my particular two are Bare Necessities from The Jungle Book. Huh. <laughs> I like to think that's a way of me telling myself to cheer up and it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Some of these complex life issues aren't really that important because you have so many basic things that make you happy. So focus on that. And in a similar vein, I, I've been visited quite a few times over the years by Doris Day singing K Sera. So. <laughs> huh. Those both seem like good life lesson songs. Yeah. <laughs> Mine that always comes back to me is Copacabana. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that says about my life, but... <laughs> Probably that you've got rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Hmm. Well, as a takeaway for composers, uh, what would you say if someone wants to try and make a sticky melody... I've been asked this question a lot um, with my research because people say, aren't you doing something really horrible? Aren't you giving all the clues away as to how to make sticky researchers so advertisers can create jingles that drive us mad <laughs> and make us buy things? And I say, okay, um, that's not the aim of the research. <laughs> but my answer for that was always, there is no magic formula for earworms in the sense that you create a tune in this key with this movements and so on and so on and it will stick in somebody's head if that was really true composers are bright people they would have noticed that pattern by now what people enjoy musically i think that's a much more valuable um, source of information than just saying what makes something sticky because what makes something sticky is so incredibly biased by what people listen to. So if you make music that people want to listen to, that's the music that's going to stick in people's head because it's the music they'll listen to. Now one study you brought up in your book you're working on uh, that I thought was interesting is the study with newborn babies like two to three days old yeah who were able to detect a beat and the babies knew when the beat was dropped mm -hmm. why do you think it is that babies have this innate sense of rhythm they can't walk yet even but they can recognize rhythm why do you think that's important to a two-year-old or a two-day-old? I think the, the fact that newborns are able to detect a dropped beat really indicates months of exposure to sound already from when the, the child was in the womb and the outcome of that. So it, it shows the amount of learning that has gone on because a neonate's ears have been functional for three months, perhaps even longer. So the great thing about our newborns is they come into this world having already started their lifelong learning of sound. It was interesting thinking, too, about how much babies can hear when they're in the womb. I mean, I knew they could hear some things, and I figured it was muffled, but I noticed you said that it's only a 10 decibel decrease in volume. So 
if the mom was at a rock concert or something, the baby could still hear quite a bit. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. A woman who attends a rock concert in her eighth or ninth month of pregnancy, the, the newborn will be getting a, a lot of sound information. What's missing, of course, is the fine detail because what doesn't get through the fluid environment of the womb are the high frequencies. So if a composer was going to specialize in fetal music, uh, <laughs> what, what kind of characteristics would that have? Lower frequency things? Or? So if you were going to compose music for in the fetus, then... Yeah, stay in the lower frequencies, uh, use slower movements of tempo and changes in volume because that is something that will transmit in the fetal environment. From the time our ears are developed between the second and third trimester, we're hearing all the sounds of the world in terms of their more musical characteristics. So because we miss out on high frequency information, we're not getting the detail of words, we're getting muffled sounds that sound more like movements in music really than they do in move movements in, in speech that we would recognize as adults. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. You could play around with taking out high frequency information from all kinds of sounds and think, how musical is this and how can we use this kind of sound? Because all that kind of sound, whether we think of it as musical or not as adults, is useful information for sound learning for an hmm. There has been sort of debates I touched on in the book about this idea of flooding the womb with music and whether that's beneficial. The only really benefit to... Um, playing an in utero music sound that I've ever come across was the argument that if a baby in utero learns to associate a certain sound, it could be a song or it could be a voice with relaxation, then they remember sounds when they come out of the womb. And you can then employ that music, you can play them that music, and they will relax in the same way that they're relaxed in utero. So once... Uh baby's born, when is a good time to start seriously teaching them music? Because, it, I mean, does it make sense for parents to do what Mozart's dad did and teach him music before he even learned to speak? I have never and will never give an age for when is the right time to learn music, because I believe that we can learn music at any age. There's an argument for neuroplasticity and it being easier to learn as children, but really we can learn music, we can learn composition, we can learn performance at any age. As a music teacher, which I was for about 15 years, I have seen many, many times the technique of pushing music on a child who isn't really interested fall flat on its face. So... Really, you have to take as much as possible your cue from the child, because at the end of the day, if they're not motivated to practice, if they're not motivated to work hard on music, there's going to be no Mozart-like benefit. Mozart was who he was because he worked incredibly hard. It didn't just happen to him one day when he woke up 
all professional musicians have worked incredibly hard on their craft. Um, all composers have worked immensely hard developing their skills. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the Clive Waring case. Would you be willing to explain that case and what that teaches us about musical memory? Sure. So I, I have never met Clive Waring myself, sadly, but I began studying his case uh, when I was a psychology undergrad, and I was fascinated by memory. I remain fascinated by memory, and Clive is one of those individual cases where we have learned a great deal about the normal memory system by observing a tragic case where the normal processes of memory have been disrupted. So Clive was a, a famous musicologist. He was well-respected for his knowledge of early music. He was a wonderful conductor, uh, choralist, keyboardist. And sadly, in mid-1985, Clive contracted a virus called herpes encephalitis, which is an extremely nasty virus that attacks the brain and causes uh, the fluid around the brain to swell. And as a result of this infection, Clive fell into a coma, uh, during which time his brain matter was put under enormous pressure by the swelling. And many of the crucial cells and circuitry in his brain was damaged. One of the key symptoms that Clive emerged from his coma with was this dense amnesia. So it appeared that Clive had lost 99% of the memories of his past, and he didn't seem able to make any new memories as well. So that's a combination of what we call retrograde amnesia and anterograde amnesia. He was effectively stuck on about a window of consciousness of just a few seconds. There were a few things he remembered from his past. Um, one of them was his wife. He was newly married at the time of his illness. And Deborah, his wife, was one of the few people, in fact, the only person that he recognized. And he continues to recognize her and be able to interact with her. And the other thing that Clive retained, despite this enormous loss, was his ability to play the piano. Clive was able to still conduct, seen video of him conducting post-illness, and he's able to play sight reads, certainly. I've often been asked if he can play from memory. I've never seen him do that, but he certainly retains the knowledge of how to play a manuscript. And not only can he play it in the same way a computer would reproduce something, he retains the memory of performance, so you can see him playing emotively. So he remembers the conventions of how to do that. Clive's case is not completely unique. We do occasionally hear of people with severe amnesia or dementia-related illnesses who retain aspects of their musical memory when many other aspects of their memory appear to be lost. What this tells us is about the survival fitness of our musical memory, that there is something about the way we retain 
both music and musical skills, which means they're deeply entrenched within our neurological systems, such that even the most severe damage that we've ever recorded medically cannot completely obliterate those memories. When you learn how to play an instrument or when you learn the skill in, in voice, you develop what we call implicit memories. So these aren't memories that you can describe to another person. It's like if somebody said to you, how do you ride a bike? So, well, I can't tell you exactly the sequence of actions necessary to ride a bike. I can show you and I can guide you because that's an implicit memory that you have. It's a motor memory. And music in many ways is like that. And those implicit memories are very deeply embedded within the brain, again, more likely to survive trauma. And then the other way that music is deeply embedded in the brain is because we know it activates our very deep reward systems in the brain. It activates those areas of the brain that are deeply evolutionarily connected to our survival. We don't know why music activates these areas, but this kind of activation is behind our very favorite music that gives us chills, that gives us shivers down the spine. That kind of reminded me of what you were talking about in your book a little bit about how music may have been even around before language. Mm -hmm. Why is that, do you think? Well, there's a theory that musical sounds formed part of a proto-language so that before we developed the ability to form sentences and to use words, we needed to communicate certain signals and that that probably came with more music-like utterances than the speech we use today. So that doesn't mean we use music to communicate, it just means that the core aspects of music such as contour and rhythm were likely to form part of our early communications before the more complex abilities of speech sounds were built on top of those. There are forms of evidence which help to support the sort of proto-language theory, which include, for example, the way we speak to babies. It's a very musical type of speech called motherese or infant-directed speech. Some people will argue this is a, a throwback to the way we would have communicated with ourselves as a society once upon a time, the way we communicate with our young. The babies don't understand the words that we're saying, but they understand whether we're being encouraging or whether we're being disproving by the more musical aspects of our, our voice. It's suddenness, it's rhythms, it's contours, whether it goes up and down. I think personally, I'm more convinced by the idea that what we think of music in the modern age really is um, a cultural invention. It's something that harnessed so much of what was useful for us as a developing species in terms of helping us to learn, helping us to be engaged, helping us to work together. So we developed music because of its use to us as, as human beings. When do you think playing instruments came into the equation, like banging sticks or I'm guessing that like a vocal sort of music came first, but I guess I'm not sure about that. In terms of what came first musically, nobody's ever going to be sure because the evidence that we would need to establish such a fact has, has just been lost to the mists of time. So we have very clever 
people who are interested in music and archaeology who look at the structure of the human larynx, for example, to try and determine at what point we would have evolutionarily been capable of song. And that goes a very long way back. The oldest evidence we have for instruments is around 40,000 years old. These are bone flutes that have been um, discovered in places like Germany. Things like vulture bones, swan bones, which have little holes hollowed out into them. Interestingly, the frequencies that are created by these hollowed flutes seem to mirror quite nicely the pentatonic scale, which still pervades human folk music today. So I just personally love the idea that there are the flutes at 40,000 years old that are playing the same scales that we use in, in modern music. That definitely speaks to something fundamental about what we like, or which could be anything from just the way our ears work, what frequencies are most pleasant. But the evidence suggests we have been using sophisticated instruments for tens of thousands of years. Voice and basic drumming would almost certainly have preceded that, but we will never ever know by how long. Sure. No one w put out recordings back then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thanks, Vicky, so much for coming onto the podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Composer Quest with Dr. Vicky Williamson. Vicky has an excellent music psychology blog at musicpsychology.co.uk. And Vicky's book that I brought up in the interview is called You Are the Music, which should be out in March of 2014. I have some people to thank for the recording of the roughly 43,000-year-old bone flute. Experimental archaeologist Wolf Hein performed the music on a replica he made of this flute. Thanks also to archaeologists Nicholas Kennard and Maria Molina for getting this recording to me. Fun fact, all three of these archaeologists appear in Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Also, the piano music you heard under the Clive Waring segment was by Neil O'Don. It's Beethoven's Piano Sonata number 32, the second movement. Now, it's time once again for... Last week, we heard from Dylan McFarling, the awesome guitarist, and after our interview, we started just geeking out about alternate guitar tunings. And my memory was jogged back to an idea I had worked on a long time ago when I was in Tanzania around 2009. I first came up with this guitar riff that was in an open D sort of tuning. And about a year later, I was playing around with this riff in my parents' closet my improvised recording studio, and I had carpeted walls and everything, and it felt a lot like a really cozy, almost womb-like room. And so I started thinking about lyrics that were 
on the theme of a womb and just a cozy place you can go to when you're feeling overwhelmed. So see how I tied everything back to this episode? Fetal music. I, I'm telling you, it's going to be the next genre. Anyways, here's the first recording I've put out in the world of Womb Song. Thank you. 